Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We are remembering the late teenage head guitarist Gord Lewis. Are you protected against West Nile virus? Find out how PPE is hurting animals. You'll hear from the captain of Canada's World Junior Hockey Team. The Hamilton Bulldogs are looking for more billets. And have you ever been stuck on an amusement park ride? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Currently... There is one accused in custody, 41-year-old Jonathan Lewis, who has been charged with second-degree murder. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That is the voice of Hamilton Police Detective Sergeant Sarah Beck after the body of Gord Lewis was found Sunday in his apartment building on Catherine Street South. His son Johnny charged with second-degree murder. Let's talk about the life and legacy of Gord Lewis, one of the founding fathers of Teenage Head. Alan Cross is our guest. He's the host of the ongoing history of new music and joins us now on GMH. Alan, good morning. How are you? Good morning. This is uh, this is really, really sad, obviously. I met Gord, I don't know how many times over the years. I don't know how many times I've seen Teenage Head play. And, and Gord was always a really, you know, gentle sort of soul. Um, everybody I know liked him a lot. I know he went through some health problems over the last number of years, but you know this is uh, this is just another sad story in the teenage head canon. You know, with you know Gord having broken, uh, having been in that terrible car accident in the early 1980s that scuttled the American tour that might have broken them in in, in the U.S. to uh, you know problems with record labels and management and all the rest of it. From a music standpoint, what comes to mind when you hear the name Gord Lewis? Well, I, I he's inseparable from from Teenage Head as an entity. I mean, this is a band that was formed across the street from from you at Westdale High School in in 1975, and that was before the Sex Pistols, that was before the Clash, that was before you know punk was even really a thing, and uh, you know this this Hamilton band was was right there at the forefront, so. Uh, with with Gord, I would suggest that you know the word visionary, the word pioneer, the word founding father. I mean, all these things you know, make sense. It's just um, you know, and, and Teenage Head was also very well respected by their peers. Uh, Marky Ramone would come up uh, and have dinner. I had dinner with all of them once uh, downtown Hamilton. Marky Ramone and the guys from the band, uh, Sylvain Sylvain. Uh, from the New York Dolls was was another big fan, and you know, when I was program director at Y108, he showed up in my office one day, and he was there because he was uh, there to meet uh, meet up with the Teenage Head guys. So, you know, it's it Teenage Head was a band, and Gord, of course, very very important part of that, uh, helped change music, not just in Hamilton and Ontario, but you know, was part of a worldwide thing. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Alan Cross, the host of the ongoing history of new music. You can check out that podcast in your favorite podcast catcher. You mentioned the car crash. I think it was 1980. Gord is involved in this crash. He's in hospital for a while, and it really derailed their exposure to the American audience. This band could have been, I mean, it was massive, but it could have been unbelievably massive. It it could have been. Remember, remember they're coming off the big uh, Ontario Place riot. And they yes. had songs all over uh, Canadian radio, and you know they were a phenomenon back then. And then you know they were having some issues with their name um, for the American release of some some songs and records. Uh, they added an S to their name, 
uh, because the American label was a little, uh, what was, what's the word I'm looking for? A little tight butted. Uh, yes, there we go <laughs> about that. Um, and then, then comes the accident and, and Gord was laid up for, for quite some time. And during that period, they lost whatever momentum and they had, and that window they had on the American market, because they were going to go play a whole bunch of showcases and they had all been set up in advance. Uh, that window closed and they were never ever really able to recover from that uh, setback. Now, music had changed as well by the early 80s. Everybody was very much into synthesizers and, and the old school kind of punk bands were, if you were around back then, uh, were, were out, of, out of fashion, out of style. Um, people had moved on. So again, these windows in the music industry can be very, very narrow. Uh, unfortunately, that's what happened with Teenage Hit. Our uh, Twitter poll question today, at AM900CHML, in memory of the late, great Gord Lewis, what's your favorite Teenage Head song? We have Let's Shake, Something on My Mind, Some Kind of Fun, or Other. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, Disgusting. I, I don't know why. I just like Disgusting a lot. <laughs> uh, we got about a minute. Your thoughts on the passing of music and movie icon Olivia Newton-John, her impact on the music world. Uh, another example of a gigantic artist uh, did you know that she sold 100 million records? I, I read that yesterday. I was astounded. Yeah, 100 million records. And she was one of the biggest pop stars in all of uh, the world in, in the 1970s. And probably peaking with Physical in 1981. That song was at number one for 10 weeks. And it was part of this whole fitness craze thing that, that hit in that, uh, in that part time in history. I mean, there was her. There was Jane Fonda and her tapes. And there was James Fix with running. And then there was, you know, Olivia Newton-John with the headband and the leotards and the leggings and all, all part of that. So, um, you know, th that was her as a, a major singing star. But her as an activist uh, for animal rights for children with UNICEF and the United Nations, with uh, breast cancer research and awareness, she actually supported a, a self-test kit, a self-examination kit for a while. Uh, she was an entrepreneur, you know, a big, big, big star who battled cancer for 30 years before it finally got the best of her. Lost two big stars in just a matter of days in Gord Lewis and Olivia Newton-John. Alan, thanks for uh, turning back the clock with us and uh, focusing in on these uh, two great music icons. Thanks for joining us. Anytime. That's Alan Cross, the host of the Ongoing History of New Music. You can check out that podcast in your favorite podcast platform. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's get to some other local news uh, happening in town, and that is West Nile virus. Yeah, the city of Hamilton raising the risk of contracting West Nile. It's, um, I guess, warning level from low to moderate. This after a batch of mosquitoes tested positive uh, the other day. Rory Scott is the Hamilton branch manager with Orkin Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rory, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well. Uh, how would you describe this mosquito season? Is it an active one? Um, I think in the last few weeks we've seen it definitely pick up. We had a lot of drier conditions earlier in the year, so a lot of rainfall, and uh, more recently we've had uh, sort of some significant rain, and with that uh, we're getting more standing water around, which kind of in return gives mosquitoes more places to breed. My guess is the humidity also triggers uh, more breeding. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the humidity can be a factor, but it's more that standing water that the mosquitoes need a place to lay their eggs for their development to happen. So when you get that rainfall, uh, the standing water is kind of the number one factor when uh, dealing with mosquito populations. That standing water, that's obviously their breeding ground, as you mentioned. Is that also where they kind of hang around as well? Yeah, I mean, you will get those those standing water areas, but um, as far as the adults, they're kind of looking for those sort of damp, uh, you know, areas um, in yards, um, different areas. So, you know, your sort of overgrown vegetation, things like that is where those adult mosquitoes are going to be resting during the day. So would you describe this season as better or worse, or I guess less active or more active than in previous years? Um, I mean, it's probably normal. Um, we're seeing like the mosquito sort of season in general uh, ranging longer in Canada, just with uh, sort of the warmer weather we get earlier and lasting later. So we don't get those cold snaps that, uh, you know, sort of historically would kill them off earlier in the fall. So yeah, we are seeing sort of that season lasting lasting longer than normal. So when does it usually begin? Is it is it once the summer hits or even before that? Um, I mean, the mosquitoes will start to breed kind of around the May time, and generally in Canada, October was sort of historically when, you know, they would die down. We'd get those uh, sort of cold snaps under uh, 50 degrees uh, Fahrenheit that uh, would sort of kill them off. But, um, I mean, we are seeing that season sort of last almost into uh, the November time now. So once October or November hits, like, where do they go? Do they just die off and then others come from, like, the U.S.? No, so I mean, depending on the species, some will overwinter as an adult. Um, you know, you'll get some that'll hang out in basement areas or, uh, you know, cracks and crevices of different structural stuff, um, and they overwinter as an adult. Others will overwinter sort of in the egg stage, right? Just waiting for certain areas to uh, get flooded out in the spring for them to sort of start their cycle again. So it all depends on the species of mosquito. Rory Scott is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rory is a Hamilton branch manager with Orkin Canada. We're talking about mosquito season because the risk of contracting West Nile virus in Hamilton has uh, increased from low to moderate, according to the city, after a batch of mosquitoes tested positive. So what are the tips for homeowners to prevent mosquitoes from breeding on their property or near their property? So, I mean, number one is always standing water. Um, I mean, you can get the population of mosquitoes breeding in something as small as a bottle cap of water. Um, Their life cycle takes about two weeks to sort of fully go through. So, I mean, you need to be out there once a week and sort of emptying any water that's uh, built up, whether it be in um, different types of things you have on the property, flower pots garbage cans, things along those lines, because that's where the adult mosquitoes are going to be laying their eggs and the larvae are going to be living within that standing water. And they're obviously staying away from swimming pools. Yeah, I mean, swimming pools, as long as they're maintained and well-chlorinated, obviously mosquitoes can't breed in them. You'd be more of a concern if you had a derelict swimming pool that uh, isn't being maintained. Obviously, that can be a a major source for uh, mosquito breeding. Are they also staying away from saltwater pools? Yep, saltwater pools the same. I mean, mosquitoes, uh, they do breed in freshwater, right, the species that we have in Ontario. So saltwater, generally, they're not going to be breeding in those how often are you guys called out to deal with a mosquito situation? Is it is it rare or is it a common occurrence? 
No, we have commercial customers that we deal with year after year where we're treating uh, catch basins and whatnot on commercial properties, similar to what uh, the city of Hamilton will implement for the uh, public roadway catch basins throughout the city. Um, but, I mean, we get calls generally daily from different customers um, having issues with mosquitoes on their property. Sometimes we'll send technicians out just for inspections to kind of assist homeowners in what they can do to sort of limit it. Other times we are setting up actual treatment programs for them. Rory, appreciate your time this morning. Uh, f- keep fighting the good fight and keeping those mosquitoes at bay. All right. Thanks a lot, Rick. That's Rory Scott Hamilton, branch manager with Orkin Canada. The risk of contracting West Nile here in Hamilton has gone from low to moderate after a batch of mosquitoes tested positive. So rule number one, definitely avoid getting bitten by mosquitoes. And the way you can do that is use repellent that includes DEET, use some uh, light long sleeves or long pants if you're going to be in a wooded area for sure, perhaps on the golf course, especially if your ball travels into the wooded area like my game does. (laughs) Um, Dawn and dusk, the most active times for mosquitoes. If you're out on the front porch or the back patio uh, enjoying a beverage or whatnot, listening to 900 CHML during those times, dawn at dusk, uh, be sure to be mindful of those mosquitoes being out. And of course, remove that standing water. So if you have a I don't know, a bird bath that the birds don't really occupy for most of the day. That might be a perfect breeding ground for mosquitoes in your area. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As we know, PPE has been a a critical element in tackling COVID-19, in fending off the virus, whether it's masking or wiping down your workstation or your home spraying that Lysol over the place and then putting on that mask and being ultra protected. It was a a critical step and and continues to be a critical step in keeping this virus at bay. There is a negative and a ripple effect to PPE, and that is when we discard it in ways that we shouldn't be, a.k.a. littering, that has an impact uh, most certainly on the animal kingdom. So much so that researchers at Dalhousie University scanned social media for photos on how discarded PPE threaten wildlife. Justine Amendolia is the lead on the study on PPP, PPE, can't say PPE, PPE and the impact of wildlife. Also a PhD student at Dalhousie University School for Resource and Environmental Studies. Justine, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah. Let's talk about your research. What did you find? For sure. Well, you totally outlined uh, the problem as it is. And unfortunately, during the pandemic, when masks and gloves have been getting into the environment, uh, we've seen such a huge uptick across social media platforms in people around the world reporting almost the same event whereby, you know, they go out in their backyard, they observe, you know, an animal um, actually interacting with masks and gloves like they, they really shouldn't. So some of the things that we found were basically 114 unique cases in which, you know, animals either were carrying PPE, putting it in their nests, eating it, or in some cases just getting tangled in it and unfortunately, you know, being found dead. Um, and we found this across 23 countries just from, you know, scans of Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Was this ever done before? Is this a, a rise in uh, animals using human-made um, uh, uh, items to build nests or, or get entangled in? 
Right. It kind of links into this bigger problem of uh, plastic pollution. You know, since humans have been making plastic on a mass scale, you know, since the 60s, it's not really news where animals have been using it in um, their daily lives and, and adapting to it or unfortunately getting hurt by it. But what was really unique about this was, you know, a in 2020, a group of Dutch researchers, I think, reported just under, under 30, 30 cases of interactions with PPE. And when we revisited the study and, you know, did it across a multi-year scale, it just, the, the numbers peaked over 100, which really caught our attention and, you know, meant that this problem wasn't going away. And in fact, it was, you know, present in more and more countries around the world. And what was really cool is that, like, a lot of the folks who were reporting this on social media uh, weren't scientists. Uh, they were just everyday folks who, you know, were making observations in their backyard. And they felt really passionate about getting the word out there and awareness that we were hurting animals with, with masks and, and gloves if they were put into the environment. So you and your research team scoured social media for these photos. How long yep. did it take? <laughs> Uh, a lot of hours on social media. I think it was um, it was really interesting. Um, you 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 know you hear so much uh, in the news that about misinformation and fake news and whatnot. And we found it really refreshing that you know we were using these platforms for good, not evil, um, and you know using it towards a scientific purpose to raise awareness for something really that we all have power to control within our own daily lives. Um, and that's you know getting litter out of the environment. Birds were especially impacted. I understand. Very much so. And you know what? It was funny because we found the highest cases happened amongst birds. But for us, it wasn't really a surprising you know, finding because whether you live in a condo in downtown Toronto or you're in the suburbs um, in Brampton or Brantford, um, you're, you're going to see nests around you because birds can fly high. Um, they can come up to your windows. And, you know, it's just a really visible animal. But um, I just want to like highlight that other people were finding around the world, you know, fish tangled up in face masks, which can you even imagine hmm. um, how many how, how much it takes for a fish to get tangled up in, in the loops? Yeah, that's quite disturbing. So what is the message to people out there who uh, have PPE and are maybe not discarding it in the way that they should? Right. And I, I think it also extends into, you know, maybe somebody does does discard it correctly in the garbage can and the garbage can just tips over. Um, it's quite tricky to manage your waste once you've thrown it out, you know, out of sight, out of mind. I think bringing your PPE back home, your face masks and putting them in your garbage can at home where you can tie up the bag securely and make sure, you know, there's no potential for leakage is important. And just keeping in mind that you know, the plastics we use in our daily life have a afterlife that extend years and years and years and years after. So just being cognizant that, you know, um, they might cause harm to animals and just making sure you're responsible with how you dispose of it. We have about 30 seconds. Are there any plans for a follow-up study? Um, to be honest with you, uh, if you check out some of the images online that are floating around this study, um, they're quite heavy. It's, it's really sad as a biologist seeing these pictures uh, from across the world. So I just want to also raise attention to the fact, you know, a lot of work like this takes a lot of emotional labor. And yeah, I think we've done our, our role where we should with bringing out the messaging. And we really encourage people to take action and try to reduce plastics in their daily life where they can. Great message. Justine, thanks for joining us this morning and shining a spotlight on this.
Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, Rick. You too. That's Justine Amendolia, lead on the study on PPE and the impact on wildlife, a PhD student at Dalhousie University School for Resource and Environmental Studies. You can Google them, uh, researchers at Dalhousie and their uh, a PPE study. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, hockey fans from coast to coast to coast are excited because the World Juniors are back. I know it's August. It kind of feels weird, but it is what it is. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic has altered the trajectory of many sports. World Junior Hockey not uh, being immune to that. Uh, Joining us now is the captain of Team Canada and a familiar name to those in Hamilton, Mason McTavish. Mason, how are you? I'm doing good. You? I'm good. So you are, um, lo and behold, the the team captain. What did it feel like when it was announced that you found out that you're going to wear the C? Uh, yeah, no, it's definitely uh, you know a super special moment for me. Um, you know, just hearing you know the, Dave just kind of announced that um, you know for the first time in front of everybody was uh, it was pretty cool. Uh, like I said, it was very special and uh, you know definitely very humbling. So. Um, you know, it's definitely something, um, you know, I look forward to kind of getting into a game here, but, um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a tremendous honor. I'm, uh, as I said, just kind of looking forward to putting the Jersey on. Is there some added weight wearing the C or because there's such a collection of stars on this team that everyone is kind of a pseudo captain anyways? Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, a little bit, but, uh, you know, like you said, to kind of, um, you know, there's so many guys who come here and they're they're wearing C's or, or A's and they're, you know, club teams. So, um, you know, as you said, there's there's so many guys to lean on and obviously the coaching staff, too. So uh, makes my job a lot easier. But, uh, yeah, definitely a little bit a little bit of pressure for sure. Many hockey fans know that this tournament is held in December and January. Uh, it's been pushed to August because of the pandemic. Does it feel weird? Does it feel semi-normal? Because normally you would be preparing to, uh, you know, enter a training camp in a couple of weeks. Uh, just your thoughts on the rescheduled tournament here in this month? Um, yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't really affect our group. I don't think we're just, uh, you know, super fortunate. They, uh, you know, IHF did a, did a great job to kind of reschedule this. I mean, they didn't have to do that. So, um, you know, we feel very fortunate to, you know, even be here right now. So, um, yeah, no, like I said, we're just kind of happy to be here and, uh, you know, we'll show up whenever the games are, I guess. This, I guess, is a good tune up for training camp, right? I mean, you're going to be, you're going to be fit anyways, but this is really going to give you, I think, a leg up on maybe some other guys who are going to Anaheim Ducks camp and, and trying to crack the roster. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's, it's the best, you know, hockey you're going to get in August. Um, you know, I know some summer skates, you can kind of get some bad habits, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, the world junior championship. It's, it's great hockey. You know, you're surrounded by elite level players and playing against them. So, um, you know, something I'm going to, you know, look forward to for sure. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Mason McTavish. He's the captain of Team Canada's World Junior Hockey Team, and uh, they are hosting the world in Edmonton and uh, should be a uh, really exciting tournament. You've Mason, you've played a lot of hockey this year, whether it was nine games in the NHL, three in the AHL, of course, the OHL with the Hamilton Bulldogs, the Memorial Cup run, the Olympics. Now you got this tournament. How have you been able to handle all the travel, all the workload, all the stress? Um, yeah, no, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's something I love to do. I love to play hockey, you know, it's, it's, it's fun for me. So, um, you know, any chance I kind of get to, uh, to play, I'm, I'm always kind of taking it and, um, you know, it's, as I kind of touched on, it's, it's what I've kind of grown up doing and it's what I, what I love to do. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm super passionate about it and, um, you know, I always love to, you know, compete against other, other great teams. Aside from the captain stuff, what role are you expected to play at this year's tournament? 
Um, I don't know. We'll have to ask the, ask the coaches that one. But, um, yeah, no, I'm just looking to, you know, compete my hardest and, you know, win, win as many battles as I can and, you know, play as hard as I can for, uh, for my country. Uh, no Russia at this year's tournament due to the war in Ukraine. Your thoughts on uh, not having to face the Russians? It, 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 uh, from a fan perspective, it kind of feels like a weird tournament. Uh, yeah, no, obviously that's uh, it's a tough kind of, you know, situation going on there. But, um, you know, like I said, I thought, you know, the IHF has done a great job to kind of, you know, just get this tournament going again for uh, for us. Like I said, they didn't they didn't really have to do this. But um, like I said, we're just kind of fortunate to to go out there and, and, and start playing in Edmonton. Who are you most excited to play with and against at this tournament? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think all of our, all of my teammates are, you know, very highly skilled and, you know, they all compete so super hard. Um, but I guess maybe one guy would be, you know, Bedard. He's, uh, such a, a younger guy and, you know, he's so skilled and, um, you know, we have a great relationship too. So, um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say him and then, um, a country, um, that's a good question. Uh, U.S. U.S. I guess is always kind of the typical answer. I'd say so. Uh, <laughs> I would say them, but uh, just because of the rivalry there. But uh, no, it's uh, there's so many great teams, so it's kind of hard to just pick one. Yeah, it's not like you're you're providing bulletin board material. I'm sure that uh, the Americans were expecting an answer like that. <laughs> um, first game is against Latvia. What do you know about them? What are your expectations for game number one? Um, not too much. I know the capital city is Riga. I'm a, kind of a <laughs> guru i guess but uh no um i've been there actually so that's how i know that but um yeah no i mean we played them uh, in the u18s and they're they, they played us really hard they worked so hard i think we we beat them 4-2 and it was with an empty net or so um you know they got they got some skill too i mean it's obviously a smaller country but um i know they they work really hard and uh, you know they compete and they got a lot of skill You've rep- represented Canada on the international stage uh, abroad. What is it like putting on that Team Canada jersey here at home for what is uh, a huge tournament? Yeah, no, it's something, you know, I kind of dreamed of as a kid. I was always, you know, watch it with my family, um, obviously during Christmas. But now, as, as you kind of touched on, it's in August. But, um, you know, it's been a dream of mine ever since I was a kid. Um, you know, it's so special every time you get to wear the jersey. And it's, it's hard to pass up the opportunity, that's for sure. Well, we're excited, uh, certainly here in Hamilton and across the country. We wish you all the best and uh, bring home that gold. Thanks for joining us today. Awesome. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton Bulldogs, as we know, are the defending Ontario Hockey League champions. They were oh so close to winning the Memorial Cup, getting all the way to the final, and they just came up just short. And with each and every year, we know that players come and go. That's the nature of junior hockey. They're here for a few years, and away they go. Well, that is also the case for many families who play a huge part in the success of the Bulldogs and many other junior hockey teams from coast to coast to coast. And that is the Billet family. And here to talk about the importance and the need for new Billet families for the Bulldogs is Justin Ismail. He's the manager of Partnerships and Strategy with the Hamilton Bulldogs. Justin, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. I appreciate the time. Let's start with the basics. What is a billet family? Yeah, billet family is pretty uh, fundamental piece in in our organization here. They're uh, they're families that open up their homes to allow our players to come in and stay for the duration of our season here. Um, they end up being a huge part of not only our organization but the players' lives and and um, everything that uh, we try and do within the community. This is a big asset here because. It allows our players to stay here, train a little bit longer, 
Uh, they obviously the big part of being a billet family is uh, having a fridge full of food there. They're teenage boys that skate <laughs> a lot and uh, play a lot there. But uh, yeah, just uh, there's uh, just a couple of requirements here. It's uh, a double bed for each player, dresser, uh, closet space, towels, shower supplies, laundry, dry cleaning, uh, long distance phones calls. But uh, most of the kids have cell phones now. Uh, preferred a parking space and a desk and a table. Obviously. Uh, for them to do their work and their studies there is a big part of what we do as well. Um, but that's it. Uh, there's not much that goes into it. It's like having your typical teenager. This is what we have to realize too. A lot of people watch our players on the ice and they look bigger than life, but uh, they take their helmets off and there's their the ages of 16 to 20. So they're still young boys, young men still developing. Uh, so having them in your homes and stuff, we rely on our billet families quite a bit uh, to obviously help mold and, nurture our athletes here but uh so far so good with everything there we've had over 10 players move on to the nhl and stuff like that so these billet families are a big part of what we do and we, we appreciate the ones we have and we're looking forward to bringing on more how many do you have and more importantly how many more do you need yeah that's a great question rick uh as of right now we're we're pretty good we've had a lot of families that have still been with us since 2015 but it's it's uh it's a big undertaking and we understand that um so once a player kind of ages out or moves on to the next level we're always looking to add on more families we'd love to have a pipeline that we can just turn to uh because we know the nature of hockey there's trades injuries where we have to kind of switch up our roster and then find a home for a, a new player so always looking to have that pipeline nice and full and i know we have the community support um here in hamilton so always looking for new families if you want to inquire please feel free to reach out to me we do have a specific bulldogs uh, billet page it's hamiltonbulldogs.com forward slash billet um, and i'm gonna call away if any families are interested but um that's it what is in it for the family themselves other than you know bonding with the athlete uh, cheering for the bulldogs what's in it for the family yeah, absolutely. There's a little bit of a compensation that we give um, to help uh, negate some costs there for taking on the athlete. Um, but from what I've seen since 2015, it's the biggest thing, and it's never about the, the money or the compensation. It's about just the bonding that uh, you have with the athlete that's in your home. I still see some of our athletes that have moved on to other levels. They come back. They come see the families as, as soon as they can. If their season ends, their first trip is back to Hamilton to see their fam, uh, billet families, I should say. And it's it's a bond unlike anything um, you've ever experienced before. Like I said, these athletes are coming in from 16 to 20. You're a huge part of their development and pretty much a big piece of their fundamental lives in their teenage years. So when they, when they do move on, there's a lot of appreciation, not only from the Bulldogs organization, but the player itself. And uh, it's just a bond that they have with them. Um, themselves and like the bill of brothers and sisters that they're in the house as well you can see a life lost life lasting bond that they have with each other it really is a unique uh, relationship and a partnership and a huge part of junior hockey again if you're interested in becoming a bulldogs billet you can go online to hamiltonbulldogs.com forward slash billet justin we'll have to leave it there thanks for the time today good luck attracting new families to this program no problem really appreciate the time there and uh, we'll be on soon, hopefully.
You got it, Justin. Ismail is the manager of partnerships and strategy with the Hamilton Bulldogs. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is Good Morning Hamilton. Welcome back to 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Subscribe to the GMH podcast in your favorite podcast catcher. Hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. Well, imagine being at Disney World. It's a it's a magical place. It's a fantastic land. It's one of the uh, most famous and iconic theme parks on the planet. But imagine being stuck on a ride for about an hour. And not only that, but having to listen to a song over and over and over again. It happens to a bunch of people at uh, Magic Kingdom on the It's a Small World ride, which has been at the park since 1971. This, as uh, at least one or two individuals are saying, was torture, according to them. Uh, Our next guest has, uh, I think, experienced a slice of this. Her name is Joelle Booth and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Joelle, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How many times have you been on this particular ride? Uh, I would say over the last 10 years, probably about 20. Okay, so you're a, you're an It's a Small World veteran. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Pretty much so. Have, um, how long does this ride take, number one? Um, it's probably about a three-minute ride. Okay. Like, it's not that long. It's just very repetitive. <laughs> so in that three-minute time frame, how many times would you hear the song It's a Small World? Oh, good Lord. Um, Probably 10 times, but you're also listening to it in several different languages. (laughs) So over a a span of an hour, you're hearing it dozens of times. Can you imagine being on this ride for that long? Oh, no, I would not. Like the the classic uh, Sherman Brothers song would probably start haunting me at that point. (laughs) And so this this, uh, apparently happened... And, uh, you know, Disney officials, or at least uh, park employees, didn't really realize that this, the, the line of boats was stuck for about 45 minutes until they kind of figured out, hey, like no one's moving, we should do something. What are your options at that point if you're stuck? Is there anywhere to go? No, you're stuck in a boat. You can't get out because you're surrounded by water and the edges are not close to you at all. Like it's a, it's a good little ways away. Like even if you go to stretch your arms out, you can't touch the sides. You're stranded. So you're either in the boat or you're swimming. Exactly. Which might not be a good option. (laughs) No. (laughs) Mind you, it's only maybe up to your waist, but still. (laughs) Yeah, you don't don't want to get that wet. So what do you think these these people should get? Uh, Normally, Disney doesn't give you a whole lot. They say, hey, sorry about it, and have a good day. Wow. Um, I've been on rides before where we've been stuck, and they just send you out the back door and... Let you out to the wild, and that's it. <laughs> What's going through your mind when you're when you're stuck on a ride? Oh, it is crazy. It's like, okay, well, how long is it going to take? What are they going to do? How are we going to get off of it? Yeah. And then what little maze are they going to put us through? So and it's s- crazy. And how? what's the longest amount of time you've been stuck on a ride? Um, me, myself, with our family, it's maybe about 15 minutes. Not as bad as it's a small world, people. Right. Thank goodness, but... Yeah, it's it's interesting. I would imagine, yeah. Uh, well, that is a uh, hopefully it doesn't happen to you the next time you're on this ride. No, I'm I'm imagining you the next time you're going to be at Disney, you're going to take in the It's a Small World ride. I mean, you got to keep the tradition going. 
Is is getting of stuck? We in, always have to. Yeah, is getting stuck going <laughs> to be on your mind though, <laughs> while you're on the run? Oh well, if it happens, it happens. We have to just <laughs> absorb what we can and experience what we can. With uh, our luck, we get to go several times. So every time you go, it's something different. That's awesome, Joelle. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us, and uh, good luck the next time you're on this ride. And thanks so much. And it's Joelle Booth, frequent visitor of Disney World, and I'm sure the next time she and a bunch of others are on It's a Small World that they will be thinking about getting stuck, perhaps. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.